Countdown! <laughs> so there's like a lot of smoke, like physical smoke. Yeah. It's, I was seeing some pictures from Ottawa, like right near where the actual, like the big fires are up in Quebec. And it's just like, it looks like an apocalypse. It's incredible. Like the sky is a whole different shade of orange. You know, the, like the sunsets are absolutely gorgeous this week. At least when the apocalypse happens, it'll look nice. You know, we'll get yeah, a nice exactly. sunset out of the whole thing. Right. What's up, everybody? Thanks for tuning in to Beam Radio. Welcome back to Beam Radio. I'm Stephen Nunez. And today we have a really, really cool guest on I'm really excited to get into it with him and talk about how it fits into the future of all of our uh, web development, Phoenix, and all the other things. Um, before we get started, I want to introduce our panel, which is, well, I guess today it's Lars, Lars Pickman. Hey, that's the panel. It's me and Lars. <laughs> yep, uh, yep, yep. Everyone else called in sick. I don't know what's going on. That said, I wanted to give a quick shout out to our sponsor, Groxio Career Fuel for Programmers. Really excited. Um, we don't have any update from them today, but as you can imagine, there's a lot of exciting stuff going on. Uh, I'm going to go ahead and hand it over to Lars, who's, uh, who's running today's show. We can introduce our guest and we can get started. My pleasure. So I met this guy at ElixirConf EU. He sauntered up to me and was like, hey, you're that guy, right? And I was like, huh, that name seems familiar. So our honored guest today is Matt Trudell. And he was talking at ElixirConf EU about Bandit. I think he's talked a lot about Bandit recently. We'll see if we can find the best angles uh, to talk about Bandit. But before we get into that, welcome to the show, Matt. Great to be here. Thanks for having me. And we always like to begin by kind of getting the background on how did someone find Elixir, Erlang, the beam, whatever they found, whatever their journey was. How did they? How did you end up here? Well, I've <laughs> I've kind of had the good fortune, I think, of um, writing Elixir full, more or less full time now for about six years or so, and I kind of fell into it more or less by accident. Um, I was originally con like it, before I worked in the beam, before I started with Elixir, I was doing iOS contract work um, and a fair bit of rails work on the side. It was kind of like your usual one person shop where you kind of have to, you, you do whatever you need to, to you know, make the client happy. Usually that was iOS work with a bit of rails to do the backend stuff. Um, so the move on the back, you know, from the backend over to rails from rails rather was, Pretty typical, I think. I think that's a really common story for a lot of people coming into Elixir. Um, the first shop where I wrote it actually used Elixir for um, factory automation. Um, so they, 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 they write a product that manages the operation of a, of a, of a factory, uh, schedules machines and downtimes and breaks and all that stuff. Um, so the real-time nature of the Beam fit really naturally into that. Um, they also had started off as a rail shop and hit the obvious growth um, stumbling blocks that you usually do with Rails, you know, especially with something like that that's very real-time based and there's a lot of asynchronous stuff going on. Rails was a great fit for the stuff that was user-facing, but everything else it just kind of fell over for. So um, kind of started there. This was like back in like the Elixir 1.5 1 days, like it was a while ago. Um, and so there was, you know, there was some rough edges. Um, in the language, uh, I'd done some functional stuff in university, but I'd never really worked. I'd never actually used it, you know, to, to ship things. So it was a bit of a learning curve for me, but it just felt really natural. And it just, you know, kind of seemed like a really, um, not error-free, but it was, it was, it was a, a pattern of development that kind of forced your hand to do things in a way that was easy to prove correct or easy to demonstrate correct. Um, and I've just kind of never looked back from it. Um, it's been it's been a good journey. I think the to your point about having spoken about Bandit a bunch, my first um, public speaking engagement um, was at MPEX New York in like 2017 or 2018. And I at the time I'd written a library called Skedex, which was a uh, a, a scheduling library that essentially let you run tasks on 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 cron as, as cron jobs basically. Um, and that was something that I'd written for that factory, for that factory automation product um, that ran a bunch of the stuff in the back end. Uh, and I'd use that same thing to turn it into a drum machine. 
uh, and I wrote a, an actual like that. It didn't actually play the music. It just spit MIDI, MIDI messages out to Ableton and Ableton did the actual lifting of making the, the 808 sounds. But um, it was it was just a really cool kind of like, oh, this thing's really flexible and you can do all kinds of neat, you know, stuff like that with it. Um, and then kind of ran from with that to a bunch of other side projects. Uh, the latest, I guess, of which is the, is Bandit, which is what I was speaking about um, at Lexicon for you last month or two months ago, I guess now. Heck of a side project. What made you want to build a new web server? So this is, I, I always get a kick out of explaining the origin story for it. It actually started off as a, as, as a bit of a laugh. Um, there was never any uh, like work driven need for this. Um, the original story for this was that I, um, we have one of those air conditioners in our house, those wall mounted ductless, um, those air mini splits, I think they're called in a lot of the world. Um, and we wanted to be able to control that from our phones. Um, but those things have like the old school, like handheld remote controls that look like something out of the nineties. You know, they look like a, a remote control from a TV back when they were still like tubes. And, um, obviously you can't use that from your phone. You can't use that, you know, when you're coming home from the in-laws or something like that to just make sure that the house is cool or warm as the season may be. Uh, and so I was like, what I'll do, and I had this idea in my mind, I'll take a Raspberry Pi, I'll stick an infrared blaster on the side of it, and then I'll just have this thing shoot commands, pretend to be a remote control. And I'll, what the hell, I'll use Elixir for it. Um, and we started, we're an Apple family, so I wanted to make it work with HomeKit. So I'd started looking at what the HomeKit standard looks like for this. And it, it turns out to be mostly HTTP, um, like um, HomeKit devices in your house, like light bulbs or you know fans or whatever actually run little HTTP servers on them. Uh, and that's how iOS devices communicate with them. Um, but it's not its not completely by the standard HTTP. Uh, one of the things that they do is later on, once they've established like a connection, a persistent connection, they run this over an encrypted channel that's like encrypted, like right at the TCP level. It's not SSL, it's not TLS, it's kind of its own thing that for a bunch of reasons makes perfect sense for their use case. It's the right thing for them to have done. But it means that like using Cowboy for it was a complete non-starter because there was this almost almost probably less than half a dozen lines of code that I needed to just shim in the moment that bytes got read in, you know, in, in, into the, the web server. I needed to run them through a, a decryption thing and to do the same with bytes going on the way out. Um, I spent a couple of nights just trying to get this working in, 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 in Cowboy and the, the, the library underneath Cowboy is called Ranch, um, trying to get this working in Ranch. and just kind of gave up. It was Erlang. It wasn't super fun. I wasn't having a good time and I was doing this for fun. So if it wasn't fun, what's the point? So I was like, I'll just write a web server to, to run this thing on because it's, why not? Uh, so I don't know, maybe two months later or so I had 0.1 of Bandit shipped um, that ran enough HTTP to be able to run the HomeKit library. Uh, it's, it's actually since been released. It's called HAP, H-A-P. Um, and it's we ran enough HTTP to be able to do that. So just a couple of basic like gets and posts and stuff uh, with a, with like a quick implementation of the plug API. Um, and then I just kind of went from there. It became very apparent to me pretty quickly that like the, uh, the, the, the HomeKit library was not the crown jewel of this whole thing. It was actually the web server that was, you know, I kind of realized pretty quickly that there's not, not, not a lack of love for cowboy, but that it's, it's kind of, it's good enough for people, but nobody really does anything innovative with it or, you know, directly with it. Um, and it's just kind of like a lot of people, I think it largely cause it's Erlang. A lot of people kind of just, oh, well that we'd have to touch cowboy to do that. So we're not going to bother doing that. So a lot of projects kind of hit that, hit that wall and just kind of stop. Um, and so it's nice, you know, being able to have a full Elixir server web server now in the, in the ecosystem to be able to do things like that. So it's been it's been a really fun journey uh, with a kind of a weird origin story, but I think it's getting to the point now where the community at large is starting to really benefit from having a familiar stack for that, and you know, frankly, to have a project that's a bit more actively developed as well. And the AC is that well automated? The AC, ironically, has still never been done. I have had on my workbench in the basement. I have had a Raspberry Pi and a little breadboard with a couple of infrared blinkers on it. I've had that sitting there next to my soldering station for like about two years now. And it's, it's, it'll get fixed eventually, but realistically for the, you know, the bit of time that I have to be able to spend on this, Bandit has reached a, uh, a, a large enough critical mass that I spend most of that time just triaging tickets, frankly. 
and just, you know, adding things that other people want. That is an impressive jack shave. It's a bit, the, the original, um, so I did all of this, um, mostly to win a bet from, uh, a friend of mine at the Toronto Elixir night about four or five years ago. And, um, the presentation that I did on it was called the first of a poor, of a four part yak shave. And I think at this point I'm up to about the ninth or 10th part of it now. So it's, it's been a journey. So I, when, I'm really curious. So like, um, so you saw this opportunity, uh, where you kind of needed to get in the stack of the, the HTTP stack or even the TCP stack in a weird place. And now you can, and it's great. And at some point you'll get that AC going. I believe in you. Um, what other, uh, I guess, opportunities do you think something like bandit opens up as far as like interesting things you can do with HTTP, interesting things that people were doing sort of with even TCP in that stack, um, that are now easier available, um, that weren't before. So I think probably the, the, the most illustrative example of that is not so much with HTTP, but with WebSockets. Um, so Phoenix obviously has amazing support for WebSockets. That's right. kind of its, you know, it's, it's crown jewel. Um, but the way that those were implemented prior to Phoenix 1.7, um, was that they were, um, they were done essentially integrating directly with, um, with Cowboy's implementation internally. So mm. there was a, um, a, a, there was a module in Phoenix called uh, Phoenix dot something dot Cowboy Handler. And it had a bunch of like, col like, you know, you know, modules to start with colon, like the Erlang calls. It had a bunch of Erlang calls that called directly into the, uh, the, the, the innards of, of Cowboy's particular implementation. So on the HTTP side, uh, Phoenix was always a plug application, right? It, it looked and acted like a plug. And in theory, you could swap out any HTTP server to any plug server to run the HTTP side of it. Hmm. And in fact, Bandit did that like almost out of the gate. Like you could run everything except WebSockets in a Phoenix application almost from Phoenix one zero uh, from Bandit zero point one forward. Like it, there's hmm. not a whole lot of because it's an it, the plug is an API and it it, it provides that abstraction. That's its right. job. But Who there was uses no WebSockets anyway. Exactly. <laughs> There was no corresponding <laughs> library for WebSockets, right? right? And so if you wanted to build something like WebSockets, and like, well, like, like, like Phoenix did, you had to go and do it yourself, right? And so one of the big things that uh, I worked towards with the uh, 0.6 stream of Bandit was to define essentially plug, but for WebSockets. It's the library called WebSock a behavior called WebSock. Um, it's since been, I've, I've, I've transferred the ownership over to the Phoenix organization. So it's actually like a Phoenix project now that they, that they maintain. Uh, and we did, and did a bunch of the legwork to be able to provide support for that within Phoenix. And so as of Phoenix 1.7, Phoenix now runs on that. So it now has, we basically shimmed this abstraction into its WebSocket stack hmm. that is essentially the same abstraction as plug is for HTTP. And so the cool thing with that is that it means that you can, and, and, you know, nobody really noticed, which was kind of, you know, like it's, it's that sort of, it's the sort of work that if you do it well, nobody notices. Right. Um, um, but it was a pretty substantial amount of like plumbing changes under the hood. Uh, and it enables a bunch of kind of really useful things. Uh, the, the first of those is that you can now run uh, Phoenix on a bandit, on a bandit server, um, like the, the full Phoenix experience with WebSockets and everything. Um, it means that we can do things like change the, the, the behavior or the things that you can do with the WebSocket much easier because it's a, it's an actively maintained library. It's an actual specification that, you know, we can, people could open up issues or PRs on, and we can actually, you know, like debate them with a real implementation in front of us, not kind of having this thing in Erlang that nobody, that half the, half the people at the table can't read. Um, so that's been really powerful and we've been doing, some things around the edges with WebSockets, uh, defining there's been, for example, Firefox has some um, differing behavior from 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 um, from from the WebKit uh, clients, like from the WebKit family of clients, in terms of how it handles uh, WebSocket connections when the user navigates away from a page. And previously, and and it's 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 stuff like you want to be able to have your Phoenix your Phoenix sockets clean like clean themselves up properly in that case. Um, 
And it was this would have been something that in the li- previous to 1.7 would have been had had to have would have had to have been handled in a in a very specific way for a very specific server, you know. And so being able to have this flexibility to to move more quickly on these things, um, there's been a couple of other cases with things like that, um, with cases like this where people are just kind of like finding the odd little sharp edges with with WebSockets and just slowly refining those. Mm. Um, in terms of actual user visible stuff or or developer visible stuff. I spoke about this was actually the main thing that I got to, that I that I got to with my ElixirConf EU talk. Um, you can now in Phoenix One Seven uh, write WebSocket handlers within Phoenix that have the full power of Ecto and you know uh, you know templates and all the other greatness that, uh, that that Phoenix provides, PubSub and everything else that can talk whatever WebSocket protocol they want. So not necessarily over channels, not necessarily over over Live View or any of the stuff that powers that. But you can use this to, the example that I give is if you have an existing front end that's written in whatever web framework you want, and you have a back end that's powered by who knows what, and you want to sub out that back end, you, in that situation, need to be able, you can't just say, well, we'll just use channels for this, because the front end doesn't know what the heck a channel is. You need to be able to essentially substitute in for the implementation that 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 that, that your your current stack has, you know, in terms of the messages, the messages that it sends back and forth. This is now like super trivial in in Phoenix. It's like the I demo, I live demoed it on stage at at um, at ElixirConf. It's it's super super straightforward to do. I've and done this. Um, I've had to do this. Yeah, and it sucks. It's, it, it sucks. <laughs> and it was it was possible, kind of, sort of, in Phoenix, like earlier than one seven. Mm. But uh, there was a ton of like asterisks and concessions on that. Whereas right. now it's a totally first class thing. Yeah, when I and all I of the have, stuff in terms of channels and live view, they just build on that same those same sets of abstractions. Yeah, when I had to do this, it was uh we couldn't use a Phoenix app, so we were taking over something that was written with just straight web sockets. It was written in JavaScript, and we were writing in. in I pitched it to we should write this in Elixir. Why not? It's great. It'd be perfect. What could go wrong? Uh, Phoenix didn't do raw, um, like just web sockets. So we basically built an Elixir app that was just a WebSocket server. And we wrote the cowboy handlers manually, had to do our own sort of timeouts, you know, ping down, cause you have to, yep. then you have to comply. You're like, why is this dying? Oh, I read the spec. You have to actually ping and get a Pong back. Otherwise the socket protocol says that it yep. should die. And all this stuff was a nightmare to build and like figure out and like, you know, build while the, while the bus was going. Um, yep. And we, we didn't get the benefit of, um, you know, using something like, uh, Phoenix out of the gate with all the great things that it comes with. Cause it was just a little old Elixir app. Um, yep. learned, learned a lot about Elixir on that project. Uh, and I'm grateful for it in a lot of ways, but the next version was, well, let's just build it with channels and we'll kind of like cut people over. And then it was just straight channels, but it would have been really nice to have basically do it in the same system, start a Phoenix app, have all the abstractions worked out, use pub sub, take advantage of all those things, but then just take over the, um, yeah, just take over that uh, WebSocket layer, and yeah. then migrate people over a little bit easier. So that's awesome. that's exactly that's yeah. that's exactly what the stack does now. And yeah. it's actually that's another cool. interesting point that you mentioned there is that um, one of the other things that came along with that work, and this came out as part of Plug One Point Fourteen, um, was that upgrades from an H because a WebSocket connection actually starts as an HTTP connection, right? So it it makes a, an HTTP request to the to the server that has a couple of extra header fields. Um, and the server, if it if it accepts it, returns like a, a, an a, an HTTP one hundred and one, mm-hmm. like a switching protocols uh, response header, and with, with its own headers, and then that 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 same connection kind of magically just becomes a WebSocket, right? Instead of returning, you know, like an HTML response body or a JSON body or whatever, it just becomes a, a WebSocket that you can send messages back and forth on, um, and that upgrade as of plug is is now this was the work that we did in Phoenix in plug one dot fourteen that coordinates all of this that upgrade is actually done via plug and mm. so your websocket connections that come in phoenix actually sees them as a plug initially it sees a plug that has all of those upgrade headers and then you know phoenix goes and looks at it as a plug using all of the plug apis for this wow. um and then when it decides that it actually wants to accept this upgrade there's a a, a new upgrade underscore adapter function on plug and then you basically pass it the con and a bunch of information about like how you want to upgrade it, you know, to a WebSocket and use this module to handle the behavior and stuff. 
And um, then that goes and actually goes and runs through the, the, the WebSock protocol. So it means that you can route your your H, your 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 WebSocket upgrade requests. You can route them as if they were an HTTP request because they are an HTTP request. Right. Right. So you can you can push them through your, your your Phoenix router. You can interact with them as a plug. You know all of the, all of that good stuff. So cool. So it makes all of those little bits and pieces that you that you speak about. It makes all of those pieces actually accessible as building blocks, whereas previously they were kind of just hidden away behind some you know abstractions that kind of dated from the earliest days of Phoenix and nobody had ever touched them since then. Yeah. And I want to call out like how big of a deal like WebSock is. Like I know the the big changes. So my, my background is originally like in Ruby and Rails. And, you know, there was a time before Rack, right? Where you had, you know, anybody was implementing their own web server. There was no sort of like fixed concept for it. And you saw a, like an explosion of new web servers the second that we had rack and like a, a, a known implementation plug, I think has definitely uh, been a good, you know, implementation of that concept as well. And I love that WebSock, uh, you know, it's plug for WebSockets. I, I feel like WebSockets are this, this technology that is amazing, but like is just taking a long time to become or took a long time to, mm. to get, um, I don't know, full usage. Part of it was browser implementation. Part of it was just like lack of familiarity and addition of complexity. But I, I really like the idea of this. And I mean, I guess I have that. Is there like a, a Rust adapter for WebSockets yet? Because that seems to be what happens in Elixir these days. It's just like, I want to write this one little bit here in Rust. Well, we're, we're actually looking at one of the other cool things about having kind of a brand new HTTP stack is it's really easy to profile it. Um, and I've built in uh, as part of the 0 0.5 release stream in, in, in Bandit, which was like last summer, I think, or last fall. Uh, I built out some really comprehensive um, micro benchmarking suites that actually run within CI. So awesome. every every branch that comes in, we can run comparative to see if it gets faster or slower a, a, along a couple of dozen different metrics. It all gets graphed and CSV exported and all kinds of cool stuff. Um, so it's really easy to profile this stuff, which means that we've identified like one of the places in um, uh in web in the WebSocket stack that was actually really slow is uh, and this cowboy suffers from this as well. They actually have a flag to be able to turn this off. Um, there's there's these there's 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 a, a, a one of the constructs in WebSockets are text frames, hmm. and they're the thing that you use almost every. They're like basically just a text message that you send back and forth, either and can send them. Um, and the standard says that the body of those must be UTF-8 encoded, hmm. um, like up, all uppercase must. And so um, you end up having to check if something's UTF-8. It turns out that actually checking to see if like a, it's, it's an order and operation to be able to do that. If you have a one meg string, you have to do one meg worth of essentially character at like character inspections along the way. Um, and then so we were like, how can we make this fast? And I rat hold on that, on the um, like, and it, it um, the, the string, like the standard library string has a function, I think it's valid, I, maybe, maybe UTF-8 underscore, uh, UTF-8 question mark. I can't remember the name of the, the, the function. I think it's valid question mark. Um, that, th it turns out that implementation from pro for profiling it, we looked and saw that that implementation was actually taking like 30% of the request time of, 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 of Bandit's request time was just to validate this thing was UTF-8. So how can we make wow. that faster? We start doing a bunch of work on that. That actually landed upstream in, in Elixir 1.14, I think, 1.15 nice. maybe. Um, and it like, it's like, I think it's four times faster now because we just are like essentially just doing like SIMD style, like chunking it out in bigger chunks and looking at six bytes or eight bytes at a time. Yeah. Um, so there's little things like that, right. That you can kind of like start. And anyway, so to, to get back to your rust point, there's a bunch of other things that we're looking at now that are like, oh, this is a, a, a thing that would be much, much fat, like that we could stand to have a native implementation of. And so mm -hmm. we're looking at doing a couple of those things with, uh, Essentially, using Rustler and like a like like a, like a optional NIF abstraction for some of the slower things oh. that you can optionally sub in if you want the if you want to be super performant. That's awesome. That's awesome. So, is it the fastest server in the West now? Then, <laughs> well, I was going to say there. That. I was going to say because you know we got cowboys, we got the yeah. ranch, you know we got gun, you know, and you're the bandit man. Like you know you're you're the bad guy here. 
Well, so I, it's actually kind of, I actually, to be honest, I, I kind of regret the naming choice. Um, I made it, like I say, this whole thing started off as a bit of a lark, right? Like this whole thing was a joke out of the gate. And so I didn't think too, too hard. Like the gist is, so Cowboy sits on top of Ranch, right? Ranch is the library that sits underneath Cowboy that provides the socket abstraction. And that makes sense, right? Because Cowboys live on ranches, right? Um, the corresponding, and then of course I, the web server that I write is called bandit and a bandit is like a cowboy or like a, you know, whatever, like, um, you know, like a, like a sits opposite a cowboy that makes sense. Um, but the library that sits underneath cowboy underneath bandit rather is called thousand Island, right? Because yeah. ranch and thousand Island are both salad dressings. Oh, right. <laughs> right. So it's kind of this like intentional and my coworkers really chastised me for this, that like malapropisms like that are kind of my thing. Like, I just love these things that are like, you know, because you, you, you can wear them earnestly and then people look at you and they think you're stupid. But then you're like, no, I, I, the joke's actually on you because I know exactly where this is going. So, you know, <laughs> cowboy is to rant. Cowboy is to bandit as ranch is to Thousand Island. Mm. Right. Is the is the. But it's you know, it, I mean, it's kind of it's, it's kind of funny. But then you get like there's some unfortunate naming history with cowboy um, yeah. that I won't get into, but mm -hmm. like if you, if you go and dig on some of the older Erlang threads about this, there's it's, it's just, it's unfortunate. And I wish that I hadn't, I'm going to use, oh, I'm going to use a cowboy pun here. I wish that I hadn't hitched my wagons to, oh. to that name. Look at yeah. that. Wow. Look at that. Full circle. Oh. I made it. But have you compared uh, per, like performance wise, how, I would typically expect a like tried and true Erlang server to perform better than a newfangled Elixir implementation that hasn't had itself tested thoroughly. We actually, one of the, that benchmarking suite that I wrote um, actually is, is, is capable of actually testing against Cowboy as well. Um, and in fact, I'm pulling it up as we speak. I'll drop the I'll drop this in the show notes, the URL to this one. But the most recent benchmark that ran uh, this is three months ago, so this doesn't this doesn't have like the most most recent work that I've done has Bandit's HTTP at about four times faster than Cowboys. For um, how much? About four times. Wait, four times. Yeah, this is, I mean, this is a bit of a juice number, right? Because this is like on a, just a, like literally just grabs the, grabs the, the response, grabs the request, turns it around, sends it back as a response, right? right. So this is not, this doesn't mean that your Phoenix app is magically going to get four times faster. That's what I'm, that's what right? I'm going it with. It means that, Bandit. it means that the server, yeah, the server parts of it, the HTTP parts right. of it, which, you know, are, are realistically in most Phoenix applications, a pretty small overall percentage. Are, but Are you saying that you take no responsibility for my latency to my database? I, <laughs> unfortunately, I don't know what's going no. on with this bandit. For some reason, my query is still, still very slow. Don't blame it on me. Blame it on the tools. Yeah. You know what? Here, I'll actually key up because I can do this. Uh, I can just run a manual benchmark. I'll key up and I'll, I'll drop it in the show notes, but I'll key up a comparison as of like the latest versions of bandit and cowboy. And have you, have you, uh, I guess like I've been in contact with sort of like, uh, in, blah, blah, blah. take, take it over. Look. Yeah. Have you been in contact with, with the cowboy team? Uh, as far nope. as like, as far as like nope. this, these are some deficiencies you have. Do you know if they're, they're looking at the, cause I imagine, look, we all want really fast web servers, right? And they're going to be some things that are, we're all running on the beam. We're all sort of like, you know, trying to get those requests out as fast as possible. Um, so yeah, no, no one's sort of like been like, oh, interesting. Apparently, we have no the the. I, I mean, I don't want to editorialize too too much here, but I my general impression of 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 of, of Loic, the 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 fellow that that writes Cowboy, is that at this point he is um, mostly just doing work that people are willing to pay for gotcha. with respect to with respect to the stack. So like, you know, he's come out and said that like HTTP three, for example, is like well, you know that'll get done when someone sponsors it. Hmm. Um, okay. You know, and, and so like there are a handful of commits against, against ranch and cowboy a year, you know, and they're mostly like, like they're, they're bug fixes. They're not, there's no, I don't believe there's a whole lot of like net new work there. And I, I, again, I don't want to editorialize too much, but I don't actually think that there's a whole lot of appetite on his part for, um, for doing that work, at least not, um, you know, without sponsorship for it. Yeah. And I, in many ways, I totally get that approach it's like oh yeah people need oh, to make a living absolutely uh, everybody's got to eat yeah, yeah but of course there's also an appetite from 
from like a software community to get like whatever what is it quick and http3 uh, and all of those related bits which is a ton of work for sure yeah like Cow cowboy certainly has a very peculiar position in the community uh, and i think like there there has certainly been some uh, debate and conflict around around how that operates and uh, I think it's perfectly perfectly reasonable to get paid to to do the work if you're not in it kind of for for building a web server out of passion and uh but I also think Elixir has a lot more traction and a lot more of this kind of community collaboration so I think there is a big upside for uh, for Elixir and Phoenix regardless to look at uh, switching to a new web server over time just to make it easier to contribute to well that's literally the the um the 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 mission statement or the whatever the 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 i guess the mission statement if you'd want to call it that of of bandit is to be uh to be to be correct to be to be fast and to be easy to understand right like the the intent of this, as much as anything else, is really intended to be kind of didactic for people that want to go and understand how these lower level libraries work. I think oftentimes there's like a a, a really a really large um, um, hurdle to overcome. People think that they that these lower level libraries are just unapproachable, and you know they're they're written in hieroglyphics that no one actually understands. That you know nobody that you know are impo would be impossible to understand. So there's no point in even trying. And I think. Um, I think the um I think the um the intent of Bandit as a library is largely to try to is you know one of its primary goals is to try to is try to get away from that. You know, this stuff is like the entirety of Bandit's HTTP one implementation is like I maybe seven hundred lines of code. Like there's not it's two files, like there's not a whole lot there. You know, it's it's the stuff is not nearly as complicated as people think it is. I love that. This is something that people really should internalize. Like it's worth looking at. Um, I would also say like HTTP one is probably a good place to start looking. I got the sense that HTTP two is a fair bit more complex. It's a lot more complex. Yeah. And quick is likely to be. And quick is a whole different deal. Um, we actually had some, I had some really good hallway track conversations at Elixir Confi U last month with um, a couple of the folks from the Erlang, uh, like from the, um, from the Erlang Foundation, um, working towards what a quick implementation would look like. Because it's one of those things without getting into the, into the weeds on it, quick is like fundamentally, or HTTP is actually built on quick. Quick is a essentially completely reimagining what TCP would be if it was built in the modern day. So it's built on top of UDP and it provides most of the same abstractions that TCP does, but along with a bunch of other ones like, like stream multiplexing and stuff, it's a, it's an enormous undertaking to build this. Um, and it's arguable that most of the implementation of at least the quick layer belongs with Erlang itself belongs in the beam. Um, so like, all of the, the TCP libraries, for example, work on top of Gen TCP is the abstraction that the beam provides for TCP connections. Yeah. Um, and the, 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 there's a very strong argument that we need a Gen Quick that essentially provides that same abstraction, but for Quick. Isn't there a new abstraction for networking, like Socket or something that's coming to? Yeah, that came, out, that came out in like 23, I think. 24 maybe OTP 24. Um, it's my impression of that. And I've spent a fair bit of time trying to make that stuff work. And I, I, I actually couldn't quite connect the dots on it is that it's mostly meant to be internal. Um, it's, it's basically meant to simplify a bunch of, it's a very similar to what we did with WebSock where, you know, there work, we kind of shimmed in this extra little abstraction that makes writing to both writing to it on both sides, like both above and below it easier. It's it's that, but inside the socket stack within within the beam. I don't oh. generally think that it's intended, at least not yet, for general purpose use. Interesting. Actually, I have a web server internals 
question because this is something I've heard a ton of times, like kind of a wandering tale that I'm not sure is true. That when, and I guess this is a question about partially how Cowboy did, but also how you've chosen to do it in Bandit. When a request comes in, many people have told me like, oh, and then you just spin off an Erlang process that deals with that. Um, so there's a new process for every request. But I've also since heard that that's not quite true and hasn't been true and that there was probably like um, essentially connection pooling or some kind of resource pool um, to constrain to constrain the number of uh, processes created which which kind of bummed the magic out of it a little bit but also seemed kind of reasonable um do you know what's true here I, i'm i'm happy to reintroduce magic into your life lars Woo! um that is that is indeed exactly what happens it's a single request it's a new request it's a new process for every request um, we'll, we'll keep the conversation because it's a little bit more complicated for HTTP two. Uh, it still mm -hmm. is the case that there's a process per request, but because it's multiplex, there's some, we'll get into the weeds if we go into the details on it, which I'm happy to, but I don't think it's quite <laughs> the right, the right place for it. But with HTTP one and with WebSockets, um, every request is a pro is, is its own process. And that process lives exactly as long as the request is around. Um, the caveat to that is I actually should have just said connection and not request because you can have a single connection to a server and you can use HTTP keep alives mm. where you keep the connection open. Um, those subsequent connections will get handled by the same request. Those, those subsequent requests will get handled by the same process. So essentially the process, uh, an HTTP connection comes in, we spin up a process and then that process reads zero or more requests and process and handles those in that process. And then when the when the connection is shut down, then that process goes away. So it it is, and then in the in the cowboy world, there's actually two processes per request. There's there's a process per connection, and then a process per request in the cowboy world. Okay. So in the simple case of an HTTP, like a single, you know, like a curl request, for example, that just connects, makes a request, and then disconnects. That will in the in the cowboy world, that will be two that will be two processes because it, that is that is one connection and one request on mm -hmm. top of that connection. Um, in Bandit, we don't make that distinction. Right. Yeah. And then when that process becomes like, for example, with WebSockets, like I was saying earlier, how an H a WebSocket begins a, its its life cycle as a as an HTTP request, um, that connection process for that HTTP request will just magically become the the the, the handler process for the WebSocket. So if you have a th if you have ten thousand WebSocket connections, you have ten thousand processes. Is there anything that prevents spawning like immense amounts of processes in that regard, or um, like does Bandit have a limit that it keeps yep. to? Or yeah. we have it's a configurable limit. It's a it's a startup option. Um, I want to say it defaults to. 15,000 or maybe it's 60,000 or something like that, but it's configurable and you can, you can spin that up to as, as high as, as high as, as much memory as you have essentially. Yeah. As someone who often abuses processes and abuses <laughs> the process dictionary, do you have like a cleanup job for that? Um, well, each of those is going to have their own process. Right. And so, um, like, well, if the you process... have a long lived connection, uh, that processes uh, well if you have a connection that spawns a process and then you get handled multiple requests with that mm -hmm. single process will that have the same process dictionary throughout its lifetime it, it it will yes and in fact the the use of a, the, the the use or abuse depending on what side of the table you sit on of the process dictionary is exactly how when i'd mentioned originally i did this to power that socket level encryption in homekit the process dictionary is in fact exactly how I use that. Exactly oh. how I power that. The when when you when you actually negotiate that that as part of the, the home kit setup process, you negotiate that key, we stick it in the process dictionary, and then the moment we read bytes off the wire on like from Gen TCP, do we have a key in the process dictionary? And if we do, then just pass the bytes through that to decrypt them. And on the same thing on the way out. Because it's a kind of an easy way to just throw things from mm -hmm. one part of. I'm of two minds of on process dictionaries. To be yeah. perfectly honest, um, I 
I, part of me, you know, thinks that like, they just like, they sully the functional nature of things and they make things, you know, like whatever, less, um, less, less elegant. But the other part of me kind of just wants to ship things. Yeah. And, and it's very Erlang to have an escape hatch. It is. For, it is for very much shipping so. things. I don't know if they made it to ship things or if it was just like no, not having it would be too inefficient. I'm not sure which it is. Um, but, but the other thing I'll say on the on the long lived process side for the with respect to web sockets in particular, um, there is a uh, an option that you can pass into uh, to, to to Bandit Cowboy has a similar option as well for how often you want to garbage collect your processes. Mm. Um, it's actually passed in, not at configuration time, but when you fire the WebSocket up, it's an option that gets passed in. So this actually comes from within Phoenix, for example. It's called Full Sweep After, I think is the name of the option. Uh, this is interesting. Now my mind goes off and like, huh, what happens if I play around with ectodynamic repos now? <laughs> because the process dictionary is used here and there, mostly for slightly criminal activities. Um, and now that in that case, that can carry over separate requests, which can, could get interesting. Yeah, there's nothing, there's certainly nothing that, that prevents that within, within the bandit model. Um, yeah. if you wanted to abuse it in that way, I mean, in practice, it's never something that I've come up against and you'd obviously, like yeah. you say, you'd, you'd have to be, you'd have to be a pretty willing, um, willing partner in this. Yes. Yes. <laughs> Uh, it would most certainly be my own fault. Now, I, I use the process dictionary mostly when I need to be able to change some behavior in tests. Like, just being able to pass, like, this magical little flag to make... For example, just today, we needed to induce an error behavior in the test adapter for um, for sending email because we had been experimenting experiencing error timeouts uh, on one of our servers and we wanted to check that our uh, our retry strategy was kind of sound so we wrote, wanted to write a test which had errors error timeouts happening but generally all, most of our mailer tests don't want error timeouts to be happening <laughs> so uh, process dictionary easy enough it's a straightforward thing for for tests also where there is no API for passing options. So there would be no way for us to effectively like communicate. We want this modified behavior. We're actually looking for a similar use um, at work right now, actually about process local caching. So um, where we have, you know, we've got um, an upstream uh, an, an upstream microservice that we that we query, and we, we need to be able to reuse the result of that. We currently call it three times in three different places, uh, and it's a fairly expensive call. So we want to just call it once, and so we can either we're kind of faced with this dilemma of do we make the call to that be a first class thing in the overall request flow, and then grab the response body and then pass that around to the three places that actually need to make use of it? You know, do we kind of promote that whole concept of grabbing it and passing it around to be like a thing that we now need to worry about in, 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 in our application design, or do we use caching and do we just, do we just let the call sites just be able to make their, you know, their HTTP requests and then rely on the fact that we can cache it somehow that generally fits for a bunch of reasons with how we do things elsewhere in the application. But then like how long of a timeout do you have? Because what you really want is you want to have that cache be local to that request. Right. And then so if you can do things like if you just have a, a like a like a like a, a a process level cache that sits in the process dictionary with primitives to clean it out at the beginning and every end of every request, then you don't actually have to worry about what the time is. The time is however long that request lives. Yeah. Even the processes that are not gen servers can lug around some state. Indeed. Barbaric. <laughs> it's all barbaric. I mean, I mean, I, I, I joke earlier about, you know, just wanting to ship things, but at the same time, like elegance is, I guess, kind of in the eye of the beholder in a lot of ways. Sure. You know, if you, if you're passing stuff around, like it, it, it depends, it depends on where you want to. And I see this, especially a lot with like a lot of like the, 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 the more, the more junior devs at work, especially the ones that don't come from an, from, from an Elixir background, which is most of them. Right. 
there's already a pretty high cognitive load um, in terms of just picking up a new language and that has a bunch of new idioms and that like functional, like in a functional approach in general is kind of, uh, is often new. And it's really, really easy to overburden people with all of, you know what I mean? Like if you take an overly dogmatic approach with these things, you can just overburden them to the point that it just kind of, it, it just, it just becomes a blur for them. Right. So I think it's, you know, there is, there is a bit of a balance there. Yeah. No, I, I mean, I the right level, pick your battles, right? Like, yeah. you know, now this isn't correct. And it's something that I, uh, something I, I pulled over from teaching a lot, which was like, this is not the right way to do this, but this is the right way to do this right now. Um, you know, and it, it is really, I think that's part of what makes, you know, beam language is really nice is that they do have this approach that if you follow it, it it's a, it's scalable, fault tolerant. It has all the beautiful things that we want. But it has these other things where like if your use case varies a bit, you can mm. sidestep it. You know, there's always a way out. So you can just say like, this doesn't make sense. I can just, you know, use, again, process dictionaries or just do weird stuff or abuse ETS if I want to. Like it's it's fine. I think part of it too is like the the, the right amount of magic is not zero. You know, this is, uh, this is the thing that... Um, uh, one of my favorite finance writers, uh, Patrick McKenzie, says this about fraud. Like he he had this whole series where he wrote about how banks seek to minimize fraud, and like the like the top level you know title for this thing is like the right amount of fraud is not zero, right? Like the goal of a system isn't to make things perfect; it's to make things um, perfect enough that the you know that 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 the that the primary thrust of what it is you're trying to do or what it is you're trying to you know, demonstrate or stop or promote or whatever it happens to be that you're trying to accomplish is, is, is made clear, right? And in the case of like businesses shipping software, that goal is, is, ship, is, is, is shipping product, right? And you don't, you don't sacrifice everything for that. But if it means that you have to sweep the odd little thing under the rug and just wave your hands and say magic, that's not, <laughs> you know, the, the right amount of magic is not zero. Yeah. It's some small number, but it's not zero. Just like no one wants to pay for 100% uptime. Exactly. <laughs> Things get more pricey the more the more sort of pure and perfect you want to be about them. Right. Mm -hmm. And that's pricey in time and money. No, that's really well said, right? We we build software to make our uh, in a lot of cases our investors happy. Um and that's that's goal number 1. You have investors? I'm open to them if anyone's, you know, looking to throw money at Oh someone. yeah, yeah, okay. Yeah, yeah. That was my pitch for, you know, just send over some money. We'll build things. It'll be cool. And they <laughs> Invest will Invest in Steven. That's right. That's right. Is there anything people should check out, should help with, should chime in to? Um, I, I, I mean, the project itself, I think, is really like reaching a point of maturity that most of the requests that are coming in and most of the PRs that are coming in are like, uh, like I've been working on this, on this, um, on this series, the, the, the series of PRs over the past week or so. Um, like completely overhauling our type specs, which is a thing that like I had them and I thought they were reasonably correct, but it turns out that people that know these things really well actually have much better, you know, a, a much more refined approach to these things. Um, so that stuff is going well. I think the um, there's 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 a bunch of work that I kind of vaguely committed to at ElixirConf for you um, to improve within Phoenix itself um, how we do things, like be able to, like. Re, like looking at what our what 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 the what the um the golden path is for doing things like socket upgrades now that we have the you know better 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 infrastructure in place for it um pulling things out of the endpoint in phoenix because we don't need to have a whole lot of magic in there anymore because there is no magic right everything is a plug so and like the 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 necessity for a bunch of infrastructure in the endpoint file goes away um those are things that like i've seemed to consistently just get pushed further down my to-do list like if it isn't relating to the core of the of the bandit thousand island stack, I seem to always they just get kind of pushed further and further down. Um, so if anybody wants to hop on those things, that'd be lovely. There's a somewhat active bit of conversation about these in the Phoenix channel on Slack about things, places where these things can be improved. There was some discussion earlier this week with um, doing connection draining that making live view processes aware of connection shutdown. So that live view processes can like actually hook into the shutdown cycle and can do the right thing when clients disconnect. Um, 
that kind of stuff is is super useful. I'd love to see that stuff improve now that we have better primitives for it. I just realistically don't think I'm ever going to have the time to do it. Yeah, it seems reasonable that you take care of the server and. and I'm not. I'm not Jose. Out. I can't. I can't do seventy five things <laughs> in in one day. Yeah, Jose definitely makes us all feel lazy. I I have I have never in my life seen anyone context switch as quickly and effectively as that man does. But if you talk to him, it's like, like you, oh, you know, I, I do like one project a year, and it's like, yeah, and it's like NX, and it's like you know, like right. <laughs> <laughs> and and meanwhile, you can have like you could walk up to him and like I I I walked up to him at ElixirConf and started dropping into like some super deep detail about the plug API, and it was like as if we'd been talking about it for an hour already, like it's just to to have like to, the ability to just be able to completely switch and load up enormous amounts of complexity across basically the entire ecosystem at like a, literally a moment's notice is just it's 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 superhuman. So I, I can't do that. I'm not nearly, nearly, nearly that productive. I also gather that you don't work full time on this. Oh, absolutely not. No, this <laughs> is, this is, th no, I, I very much have a day job. This is, this is, yeah. which, which ironically doesn't even use Bandit. So <laughs> it uses a couple other library. We use a couple other libraries that, that I've written, but not, but not Bandit. So. All right. I think that's a good place to wrap up. Thank you so much for coming on the show. It's been a super fun conversation. It's nice to get technical and nerdy at times. Uh, sometimes we just talk about community, which is lovely, but sometimes I want my tech. This has been fantastic. Um, so do check out Bandit. See if you can can get your like Elixir HTTP fix right there. And uh, as always, Thank you to our sponsors, Droxio and Underjord. That's my company, I guess. <laughs> if you need help with the recruiting Elixir devs or you need some contract Elixir devs, reach out. Happy to help. You also have great stickers. Thank you. I got some from you in in in, uh, in, in Lisbon at ElixirConf, and my daughter actually lost her mind for them. Gosh, you're holding oh, out stickers. on me, man. Yeah. Uh, send me the address, Stephen. I'll send you stickers. Uh, if your daughter needs more, do reach out. Uh, I also like your stickers. They're on the laptop now after the conference. I'm building up a good collection. That's how you know a project's real. <laughs> stickers. Your stickers for both Bandit and Thousand Isle. Thank you very much. Thanks for having me. It was great to be here. Happy to chat. And catch everyone next time on Beam Radio. So, Lars, I see you're holding, you're holding yeah. a piece of equipment here. This is where you end up if you get into video, like you buy a, a pro grade gimbal. Yeah. Are you doing like action shots? Like, you know, like you walk up to a person that's like, Hey, let's code. And then you just like start coding with them. Is that what that's uh, for? Yeah. I think that's what it's for. Gorilla coding, um, I think is what, you know, made yeah. popular in the 1970s.